Welcome. Pull up a chair, fill your mug, get comfy, join us at the table for the most unusual tea party. Here's your host and graphologist, Teresa Abram. Welcome to the Tea Party, where we talk the letter T and people. I'm Teresa Abram, a graphologist and personality investigator that helps people make better employment decisions on both sides of the hiring process. Today, my guest is Jack Barsky. He's the author of Deep Undercover, My Secret Life and Tangled Allegiances as a KGB Spy in America. Jack was born Albrecht Dietrich in East Germany in November 1949, and he became a KGB illegal spy when he was sent to live in the USA in 1978 as an American citizen under an assumed name. He has a very unusual story, and I highly recommend his book. And in this episode, we are not only looking at Jack's present-day writing, which has a trace of a non-American accent, if you will, but we're also taking a look at a sample of his writing from 1984, when he was still actively living a double life as a KGB undercover agent in the U.S., who also had a family and an alternate life in the USSR. So this episode is a most unusual and intimate glimpse into the man who has had a most unusual life. And we're going to pick up the interview with Jack explaining the difference between spies and which kind of spy he was. One last thing. If you want to watch the video of this podcast, check out Handwriting PI's YouTube channel on Thursday. So let's get started. Welcome to the show, Jack. Nice being with you. Jack, I'd really love if you can just explain what a sleeper agent is. Well, a sleeper agent is actually an agent that is infiltrated uh, into enemy territory, and he he or she does nothing uh, for however long it takes until they're woken up. Uh, I was not specifically uh, uh, inserted into the U.S. as a sleeper because I was given tasks. But colleagues of mine were sleepers. The best description for what I was, I was a an illegal undercover agent. An illegal one is somebody who has no no uh, who operates under a different identity, not his own. Uh, and then there are the legal ones that uh, they could be diplomats who are under diplomatic protection. Uh, or they could be business people or journalists and so forth, but they all ha- operate under their own identity. I was an illegal, and we were rather rare. Ah, uh, okay. So, as an illegal, you were put into the states under an assumed identity. Correct. Thank you. It's a really interesting story uh, of how you actually got into the states because there's a Canadian connection there. <laughs> And I would just love for you to share that story, how you were in some danger and you weren't even aware of it in some ways. I made my way uh, and through a zigzag route all the way to Mexico City. I entered Mexico City with a Canadian passport uh, by the name, and that's the only name I ever remember uh, of all the false IDs I traveled with, uh, William Dyson. William Dyson was supposed to be a resident of Toronto. And for whatever reason that I can't still figure out, the uh, KGB bosses told me to go from Mexico City, get on a plane that was going to Toronto, but then uh, it had a stopover in Chicago, and uh, that's where I deplaned and disappeared. I am now very much aware of the fact that uh, 
I would I was in great danger uh, crossing into the United States if if they had somehow had uh, some kind of an idea to the border agents to talk to me for a while. A, I didn't have a Canadian accent, uh, and B, I didn't know much about Toronto either. So, but I made it through. So, and uh, and then right after that came the second uh, uh, problem that I wasn't aware of. Uh, it was evening and I had to uh, find a place to sleep. I, I looked in the yellow pages at the airport, picked out a, a, ho- a name of a hotel and uh, hailed a cab and told the cab driver the address. As soon as I spoke the address, he turned around and looked at me funny. I had no idea why and I was tired, so I ignored it. But as we were driving south from O'Hare, became clear that uh, the neighborhoods got less and less attractive, so to speak. I had no idea what that meant either. Uh, the hotel was an, an old brownstone, three or four stories. Uh, that was not uh, alarming at all. I walk in there, but then I saw something that I found odd because the uh, uh, reception desk was uh, protected by a plexiglass wall. That had a slot in it where you can, you know, put the money or passport, whatever you you need to uh, show or, or or give in, and then and you got your key out of there. Uh, again, because I didn't have a good frame of reference, I didn't know how usual or unusual it was for hotel rooms to be uh, equipped with a plexiglass uh, cover at the reception desk. So you know, I I went up to my room. Uh, uh, put my 25 cents into a slot to watch a little TV. That was also something that I found out was rather unusual. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know I was tired and you know I I had a I had a bottle of whiskey that uh, I uh, I had gotten at the uh, toll free store and I had quite a few drinks to calm myself down and fall asleep. And I woke up with a phenomenal headache, uh, but, you know, spies are always well-prepared. I had aspirin with me. <laughs> so so once, that, the, once the, the headache disappeared, I made my way downstairs to go and look for a place to eat. Well, first of all, I didn't see any, so I wandered around in the neighborhood a little bit. And I've, then I said, found something that I knew was not right. I was the only one in the neighborhood with a, with a light skin. Much later, I found out I, I was right in the center of uh, the south side uh, of Chicago. With At that point, I had about $6,000 in cash on me, which is a, a small, was a small fortune, and, uh, and a false passport. If either one gets stolen or disappears, I'm in great trouble because there were no Soviet there was no Soviet representation in Chicago. Right. So it was a big, big mistake to let me enter through Chicago, a huge risk. And this was one of the mistakes that, one of many that followed. Uh, my handlers really were not well qualified. Give me guidance. And the problem was that that they didn't know what they didn't know. Right. So it was 1978 and you just didn't have that access to information like we do now. Well, they no, these, these guys actually had spent some time in the U.S. as under diplomatic cover. Oh, okay. Uh, but the problem is they didn't, they, A, they didn't know anything about Chicago. B, they didn't know uh, what it was like to live 
and exist as an American. They met a lot of Americans, but at the end of the workday, they all went uh, to their compound in New York City where they had a couple of hundred Russians hanging out together. So none of them really under, had an understanding what, it, what it's like to live life as an American. And as such, for instance, how do you go, you know, what kind of a job you, uh, you can take? How do you go about getting a job? Not, not, they knew none of that. I had to like go discover this all by myself, and I did. But that's the, the, the reason that they were looking for um, enterprising, imaginative uh, uh, individuals who, who will not be defeated. That's why they picked me, because you cannot anticipate uh, every situation that you're in. So you, you got you to pick somebody who can handle situations and re react appropriately. Exactly. And react quickly. Yes, exactly right. On the spot sometimes. And certainly your handwriting backs that up. We know that you're going to make your own decisions and you can do it proactive. And it's going to be based on your own internal set of values. So you can see what's happening and then correspond everything together to make your decision. What's going to keep you alive in some cases? I believe you. I don't need that uh, proof that uh, somehow you can determine this from the handwriting. I never know what to expect. Like when I first started talking with you as an ex-KGB agent, it was sort of like I expected to see a lot of signs of secrecy. I expected to see a lot more angularity. Number one, because you were born in East Germany. So that's right. one of the things right. that I expected. I expected to see a little bit more ornamentation in some of your letters. Because typically, Europeans, you have a bit more ornamentation when you do your letters. And it's not really there. Except for your, your uh, J, you have an extra little line on your J. That's the only sign. You know, one thing I'm really curious about, I know that you took lessons. You were instructed on how to talk American so that you would lose most of your German. Oh, yes. And, and a lot of this was actually a lot of uh, phonetics exercise by myself. So I had a tape. And I, they would go through the basic, it's, it's all in the vowels. The, the accents are mostly in the vowels. So they, they would go through a, a number of vowel sounds and I would repeat them. And I did this ad nauseum for probably about a year. And I, I did have, you know, once a week I met with a, a tutor. She, she was uh, originally, she was born in America spoke with a flawless American English, and we had conversations, and occasion, occasionally she would uh, correct me a little bit. But it, most of that was hearing, repeating, hearing, repeating. And so I came to the conclusion that uh, the, the best organs that are attached to my body are my ears, because you cannot repeat what you can't hear. And, and most people just don't, don't have the ability, especially when you start doing this as an adult to get rid of their native accent. Yes. You know, and it's more than just your ears though, because one of the things, again, I'm going to just bring your handwriting right into this right now, Jack. Okay. One of the things that really struck me when I first saw your handwriting is there's really like this lightness and spaciousness to your writing. It doesn't dominate the page. So there's a good balance between ink and the white space. And what that really does tell me is that you are aware of the fragility of life and your humanity. So when you go into a space, you're just going to be more alert to what is going on around you. You're not looking to dominate it. You're looking to get information from it. And that's what you're talking about is it's your ears, but it's also your eyes. Oh, yeah. One of my top character traits is curiosity. I always wanted to know. How, how, how did, what is he like? How does that work? And I would, 
and I give you this as an, an example. If, if I get to an object that, let's say, some kind of a machine, and I see what it's like from the front, I always have to go look at the back, see what it's like at the back. So, you know, you're absolutely right. That, that is well <clears throat> well researched. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's very obvious in your reading, for sure. Now, another thing I wanted to talk about with you is, I mean, you You've, you've kind of mentioned it where they really didn't prepare you for life in the USA. What about the reality of being a spy? Was it different from your expectations? Yes, because I, I'm, an, I'm an optimist. So I didn't expect that many obstacles. It was, the plan was for me to eventually become a businessman and become quite wealthy. That didn't work out because the one thing, the one document I, that I needed to, to make that plan happen was a U.S. passport because uh, we were going, the plan was to uh, then ha have me travel to Europe, establish myself there, open up the bu uh, business, and then the KGB would have funneled a bunch of money into that business. And within two years, I could go back to the U.S. and um, be wealthy enough to join a, fundamentally any country club. It didn't work, and I don't want to get into detail, but because we collectively, we, but ultimately it was me, made a mistake in, in the, on the passport application. I was going to fundamentally have my cake and eat it too. That was the expectation. That means I was going to uh, be a capitalist in the land of capitalists, and I would use my capitalist status to defeat capitalism. Pretty idiotic, huh? <laughs> That sounds more uh, idealistic rather than idiotic. Well, it's idealistic, uh, but it, but there's also a dichotomy in there. I fundamentally have been a living dichotomy. There's a lot of things that don't make sense uh, for normal people. Like you said, you expected uh, uh, a lot more closeness. I'm, an, I'm the most honest people in, uh, person that... Uh, at least I'm one of the most honest persons you will ever meet. I always was, but I, I also lived a big lie. So it is an interesting one. And that's all the way through. It's like, I see that there's this mixture of impulsive. You can be impulsive and yet you're also super reliable. You're a rule follower. And yet you're also a rebel. You're a thinker, but you're also an action taker. You, you love humanity. It's clear that you are geared towards people and take a keen interest in people. And yet you also like to have a little bit of isolation. There is something that says, you know what? I don't need to get close to everybody. I'm curious about them, but I don't need to be close. That's really incredibly accurate. That's mind-blowing. And I happen to also know myself rather well because I, I was forced to to think about me because I wrote a book and then I was interviewed like uh, probably a hundred times already. And you get, you always get these questions and you start thinking. Uh, and it just a week ago, it dawned on me that I'm a stoic. You just read my notes, didn't you? I said, <laughs> no. you'd make a great stoic. That's my final line. <laughs> you just took my punchline away. And, and that, <laughs> that never occurred to me, but you know, it, it makes perfect sense because I I cannot be defeated. I just whatever happens, if 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 something bad happens, I pick myself up, up, dust myself off, and go on. It's my my favorite saying has always been, you know, and I can't curse on here. Stuff happens, and then you just deal with it. 
And that's how I lived my life. And I still do. You also gave me a sample from um, earlier in your life. That's where your idealism really does show through a little bit more. That one shows there's a little bit less of that needing to have human interaction, whereas now it, it's so, so key for you is that really exploring the human connection. And it's, yes, absolutely. And it should show some of the stiffness that you expect from a German. Yes, it does. It shows the st stiffness and it shows the bigger spacing that I was expecting. And that's very German to have that amount of space. Okay. Now we, we learned, we had um, first, second, third grade, we had something called Schönschreim. That means cursive, but really well done, written. So it's it looks pretty. Uh, and then I had to write a lot, uh, particularly in college, took uh, copious notes. And when you when the professor talks and you, you go write, you write faster. And my writing got very sloppy. And then I tried to learn, you know, the American way of writing and I gave up. So I moved to um, to uh, uh, just printing the letters. Yeah. But and that morphed into the hybrid that that you that you see now. Yeah. So when did you try to learn the American way? That was in, in Moscow, but you know I gave it up. <laughs> I was curious about that. Whether they would actually try to show you how to write like an American? Is there my, a my, my tutor did. Uh, we we worked on that, but it's so and 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 it gets to be. You know, as you as you know, I, I like speed. I like to get things done quickly, and I, I couldn't write fast enough and 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 get it right. And that speaks to the fact that whenever you try to consciously change your handwriting, it's hard because it's not right for you. It's not the right fit. It's like putting on the wrong pair of jeans; they just don't fit you quite right anymore. And when you're trying to write like somebody else or in a different manner, it just doesn't fit. And so it has to take a lot of conscious effort, and it never feels natural. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. They actually did take it to that degree. Well, because they could. And there's a bunch of things that they didn't teach me. I mean, for instance, what, what I now know I should have received, lots of tapes with soap operas on. For two reasons. Soap operas, unlike movies, don't, don't have a lot of music in the background, so you can really hear how the spoken word. And secondly, there's a whole lot more sort of day-to-day -day interaction in soap operas. They gave me a couple of movies to watch. You can't learn anything from movies. Do you remember which movies? No, but I do remember that uh, they were totally inappropriate because they were shot in maybe in the uh, 30s or 40s. And in those days, even Americans spoke a stage English in movies. So this wasn't even an American dialect. And I'm really curious because for us, um, we had, you know, spy examples. We had James Bond uh, the mad comic book did their spy versus spy. Did you have anything like that that you were sort of familiar with? This one TV series uh, was called The Invisible Visor. And that was about an East German who went to West Germany initially to hunt down Nazis that were hiding. And then having all kinds of adventures, he was an illegal, right? He pretended to be somebody else. And he he was so good, and, and everybody loved that series. And I thought I would be so, like somebody like him because he rose in the ranks of government. He actually was in the military. That that contributed uh, to some degree to my willingness to part company with was going to be a very good career uh, in East Germany, and just 
just go into the unknown. So, and at one point, did you think that you were going to go just to West Germany, or did you always know from? The oh, initially, of- yes. So when when I when I first started uh, uh, my my official training after I moved to Berlin, they gave me two uh, things to read uh, in in the beginning. It was the the history of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union <laughs> and the uh, Constitution of West Germany. And and then I was advised to, to watch a lot of West German television, which generally was uh, forbidden in East Germany. So the West German television was much more entertaining. The, the switch to the United States uh, didn't happen until maybe a year into my training because uh, I was told that all agents had to learn at least a second language and be conversant in a second language. And they gave me a choice. You could pick one. And obviously it would have, would have been a language that is spoken in enemy territory, i.e. English, French, maybe Italian, Spanish. And since I breezed through English in, in high school, I mean, it was, I, I never studied. I said, well, I'm going to do English. And uh, so I did English. I started from scratch again uh, with a tutor and, and Pretty soon that tutor was, I was already above him. I got another one who spoke it more fluently. After a year, I was a fluent reader of English literature. One day we had a visitor from Moscow who asked me, so how's your language, uh, your English? I I pulled a book from from a shelf that was in English. I said, I can read this without a dictionary. His eyes got really big. Then he said, well, okay, give you a tape recorder and then record something, uh, anything. You just read and then you talk freely. We sent the, the tape to Moscow. Within a week, I was on a plane to Moscow because some English teacher within the KGB listened to it and says, this guy doesn't have much of an accent. Uh, so in Moscow, I, I met with two uh, teachers. One was the Native American and the other one was a... Uh, a member of the KGB who was introduced to me as a professor at uh, Moscow University, which he probably was, but he also was KGB for sure. And uh, we had a one-hour conversation about whatever, and then they withdrew, and after a half hour, they came back and talked to my bosses. And the the Russian said, thumbs down. He's not, I, I don't think he can. And the American said, no, I would give it a try. You know, no, wishful thinking won over. It was a tie, but, and then probably they thought the American was better qualified. What what do I know? So, uh, and that's when I moved to Moscow for two years, primarily to to train English. I got other enhanced training, but English was the reason I was there for two years. It was a horrible time, very lonely. You picked up on that too. I can be lonely. I can be alone without uh, becoming desperate, but I enjoy the company of people as well. Yeah, you definitely do. There is, you you have a, it's a right-hand slant where all your letters are leading to the right, which really does show there is that interest in humanity and in people. Particularly now that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm free to move around and talk to people and I, I get to meet a lot of interesting people. I talk a lot these days. I, I used to be a, a much less of a talker. I'm, a, I'd say, moderately extroverted. That's who I was growing up in Germany. And then I became an introvert out of necessity. As an undercover agent, you, you can't get too close to people. You have to like have a protective shield around you. 
And then when, when I finally was able to, when I was free of that constraint, I rediscovered my extroversion. And uh, now I feel for the first time in 70 plus years, I feel really comfortable in my own skin. Mm, excellent. What a journey to get there. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of detours. Yeah. I'm I'm curious, Jack, whether because I know that part of you part of your training involves surveillance where you would have to go to see whether or not you're being followed or anything like that. Yes. Do you ever find sometimes that you still do that? Does there is there ever a time where you're walking and you're thinking, wait a moment, is that person following me? Absolutely not. So as you know, I uh, retired from the KGB. I yeah, that's I a great story. Do you want to share I, that with us real quick, Jack? Because that is a, no, <laughs> up to you. <laughs> well, it, it was 1988. It was in my 10th year uh, in the United States. <clears throat> the the center, uh, Moscow Center, for some reason, uh, had an idea that I might be in danger, that the FBI was on my case. And uh, that made them nervous. And they commanded me to implement the, the emergency procedure and get out of this country and go back to on the other side of the Iron Curtain. What they didn't know was that I had something that was almost like an anchor that kept me here. It was my 18-month-old uh, daughter, Chelsea. I had fallen deeply in love with this child, and uh, and I just I couldn't see myself being separated from her, particularly... Uh, also, because her mother was an immigrant from from South America, and she had very little formal education, so my daughter would have grown up in poverty. So I defied the KGB with a wonderful lie that makes everybody laugh when they hear it. I I wrote them a, a goodbye letter, and, and in the letter I said, I can't come back because I have HIV AIDS, but I will not defect. And the last thing they would want is uh, to have somebody uh, in their country with that deadly disease. I knew that. We talked about this one time when I was back in Moscow. We had a lengthy conversation about you know AIDS and, and how this is... Uh, the outcome of the immorality in, in the Western world. So they believed it. They had no reason not to believe it, you know, because everything would have been good for me over there based on what they knew. Everything, and because, you know, I had dollar savings. Uh, they promised me a house. Uh, we had, my wife, uh, German wife, had, a, had a, the best car that you can have there. She even had a telephone, and, you know, I would have uh, returned a hero. And why would I be staying here, particularly since they knew that uh, the FBI might catch up with me, which they did, uh, but only nine years later. So you were mentioning about, because in 1988 is when they called you back and you thought maybe they thought the FBI was onto you. Things kind of fell apart. That's when the Berlin Wall came down. No, it came down a year after that, 89. The time in 88, when they're asking to recall you to come back, do you think there was any inklings there where maybe... I had no idea. Neither did the CIA. Neither did the neither did the leadership in East Germany. It just happened, and it, it was like it started small and became a groundswell. You had those Monday demonstrations. I didn't know that was happening at all. And and this this started sort of after I left the KGB. And I just wanted to answer the question that. Uh, you asked uh, with regard to whether I'm still looking at yes. somebody following me. The last time I did that was after they told me 
that the FBI might might be on my case. And then I stopped. There was no reason. And when the FBI did uh, investigated me over a period of almost three years, uh, if I had still been active and uh, engaged in counter-surveillance, I probably would have, I, I was really good at it. I would have found out. But I wasn't. I was like free as a bird, I thought. <laughs> <laughs> and now you really are. I am, too. <laughs> All right. Well, Jack, I want to take a quick look at your writing. This is the writing sample that you gave me. And I see now that it's it all points to the right. I didn't even realize that. Mm-hmm. It really does. And it's quite striking if you look at the one that you had before. And you can see how it's a little bit more vertical. There is a little bit to the right, but overall, it does not have that same mm-hmm. direction that this sample has. You also commented that you're in optimism. You can see how those lines at the top, you know, your first few lines actually pretty much all the way down, they go a little bit towards the top of the page. And by doing that, it's showing that optimism that you were oh, talking about. Up, upwards. <laughs> yep. yep, exactly. They all rise a little bit. If I put a grid of paper over that, you do not follow the lines. That's right. <laughs> and that's part of where we get to the whole idea where you're a rule follower, and yet you're not a rule follower. Because in many ways, when we look at this writing, it does follow the rules. You have, you know, I have a suggested margin here, and you pretty much follow it. Right. The rules of writing, you pretty much follow. There's nothing where you're overtly changing it. There's no random capital letters popping up. Uh, so let, let me let me tell you, uh, you, you picked up on that too. And I tell you uh, my, uh, my instinctive uh, attitude towards rules. Sure. I follow the rules that I believe make sense. <laughs> and I, in corporate America, I have often gotten into trouble when I didn't follow a, a command by the boss to the letter, but I interpreted in some way so it would make sense to me. Exactly. So you're not going to raise a stink at every turn. That's not, not no, what no, you do. No, no, no. Of course, you know, the red light is is there for a reason and it makes sense. Uh, however, if it's it's late at night and you can see both ways and no cars coming and there's a red light, I cross. Now, Germans don't do that. No, they don't know, right? In in your first sample, we see less of this. It's more of the rule following and less of what we see, where it shows that now you have evolved. You aren't always going to. And part of that is the way you start to do some what's called primary threading. And you can see here where this word, where they're no longer really clear, you've kind of started to do a bit of a squiggle. And you do that quite frequently, especially like with your N, the N. You'll make kind of a squiggle rather than making it very distinct. Called a primary thread, and I, I, I uh, actually wrote this uh, reasonably slowly. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I write really fast, I can barely, sometimes barely read my own writing. Well, that is interesting because it's clear that even though this may be reasonably slow for you, this is still fast writing. Okay, this is still I would still consider this to be quick writing. Um, yeah. So anyway, so those threads that we see in there, we've got some really good unique forms going on. Um, I think your G is one of the more unique ones. And that could just be, you know, that could be part of how you were taught. I'm not sure if that's the way the German. That's not a German G. Okay. That is your own unique creation then. I guess. (laughs) Yeah. And you do have them, right? Where you have unique formations. And that's the part that shows us that you are going to be proactive and you're going to make your own choices based on your own internal values. That's where we know that you'll follow the rules to a point and then it's going to be your rules. Yeah. And obviously this uh, evolved to some kind of an extreme during my 10 years as an, uh, as an illegal agent. 
because I had to make my own decisions. Very often what, what, what the center suggested didn't work or was good, just plain stupid. And, and they actually accepted my ignoring uh, their ideas. And for instance, one example, they, they told me to study economics because mm -hmm. uh, they figured maybe you know I can get to know some interesting people on Wall Street, yeah. but I I liked uh, information technology, so I switched a major to uh, you know computer systems, and I told them that uh, I have a better chance of getting a job, which was right. But they didn't. No no fuss was being made about this. Yeah, because they trusted <clears> you. <throat> you come across. Yeah. Right, you're honest, and and what you're talking about right there, where you can change kind of moment to moment, and in you know make those quick decisions. We see that because you have what's a very subtle wavy baseline. Oh, I do, yeah. Yeah, you see, if we were to draw a straight line, you don't actually follow it. It kind of goes a little bit of a wave. It's very very subtle, and that subtle movement just shows us that you are going to be able to assess. A situation and come up with alternatives quickly. So like when you were talking about the passport office, you would have thought of your alternative quickly and, and executed it because you've got a real fluidity of thinking going on. And that's yeah. <clears throat> Did you read the, the story? What, what happened? Um, well, I know that you went to the passport office right? <clears throat> and they questioned it. And then you said, well, you yeah, didn't even I... answer it. And so you, and so you left. Yeah, well, I left it, but I also managed to uh, to snatch the application and my documentation that was sitting in front of on the desk of the uh, of the examiner, the the clerk, uh, right. and walk out with that. Other, if I if I had left it, uh, he he most likely would have told somebody before you knew it. I, I'd be in jail. Wow, actually, <laughs> right. that's kind of amazing when you stop to think about that. You were able to think of that in the moment, and uh, yeah. That's yeah, I don't know if now now that that I'm a whole lot older, I think I get a little more nervous when things don't work. <laughs> mm -hmm. You still handle stress well, I think. Stress still oh, yeah. is it's okay. Yes. I think you have a really good grip on being able to um, tell what's within your control and what's without, because your zonal balance is really really good. So that just shows us that you have an upper zone, middle zone, lower zone. So you're able to to mm -hmm. you know sift through information and say I can control this, I can't. Right. And even more so now that I, looking back, realized that there were some situations where I thought I was in control, but I really wasn't. Mm. What's the one that really pops up for you when you say that? What's the situation you think? Okay, this, this is this is quite obvious. Um, uh, when I applied for my social security card, uh, according to my birth certificate, I was. 35 years old let's just the, the numbers doesn't really the number really doesn't matter but let's say I was 35 years old uh, and uh, the the FBI had a program by which Social Security was uh, supposed to uh, communicate to them when somebody over a certain age applied for Social Security because there was a quite a good chance that fraud was involved. Mm. Well, I didn't know it then, and I found out much later that two weeks prior to my me up applying for a social security card, they canceled that program. This is so crazy. <laughs> oh man, hey, what the yeah. fuck? Again, coming back to that idea of what you don't know, you don't know, right? Oh, yeah, <laughs> and and since uh, since everything always worked out, you know, I, I got to a point where 
you know, you can't, you can't make me pessimistic because I, I'm so used to things, even though they're temporary setbacks. Things work out. In the long run, I'm still here talking to you. I shouldn't be. You there was are. Other things that other things that happened, uh, physical things, where I was in accidents that uh, that were blood curdling. Let's put it this way, and I walked away from all of them. Yeah, that's like you say, bigger picture sometimes, <clears throat> and that optimism which we see with the rising baseline. Yes. <clears throat> now, one of the things that's interesting too is this P. Do you see your P that you have right here? Yeah. Notice how there's a real sharp spike that the stem goes higher than the circle part of the P. Yeah. Is there another P that that looks the same? You do have that a couple of times, not quite to the same degree. You have it here as well and here. Like I say, it's not quite to the same degree, (laughs) but it is there. The one that you don't really do it on is one where I'm pre, I know it's the lie, physics. (laughs) I know that's the lie. Um, But I'll be honest. The reason I know that's the lie is because Robin had told me you were a chemist. So, uh, and it's Robin Dreek who introduced me to you, and he's the one that said you were a chemist. So I'm like, not physics. That's the only reason I know. Okay, so I picked a bad lie. <clears throat> but yeah. would you would you have guessed that? I'm not sure I would have. Now, you, you told me that you did put three lies in here, and the one thing that I noticed is that physics drops. So when I do like a a grid over top of your writing and look at all your baselines and and how things are spaced, physics drops. It it actually goes below your baseline. Oh. So if we draw a line that starts here underneath your S and we go over to where you end on your Y, physics goes really low. It's one line where you dip to the bottom. Another one where you dip to the bottom is here where it's the age of 18. So Um, my guess is going to be if that might be your tell because it's the only thing that i could think of that might be plus 18 here is blobbed compared to your other eights up here that are clear no i i I, may i tell you what the other two are oh yes please do okay so um i visited reach in the village where i was born i wasn't born there ah Okay. I lived there uh, very soon after being born, but uh, I wasn't born there. Uh, I lived until the age of 18. That is correct. After that came to Pemberg, where I spent four years in a boarding school. And finally, you know, when I studied physics in Berlin, where my relationship with the KGB began, that's also wrong. My relationship with the KGB actually began in, in Jena. In Jena. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. It was, I, I, I have to say that I really was struggling to find where your lies were. But that con- confirms uh, my, my uh, claim to be an excellent liar. Mm-hmm. See, now that I know that those are the three, Reichsten, Berlin, and physics, that's where now <laughs> I'd be able to say, okay, I could take a look at those a little bit closer and see what's different about those because there's going to be something. Okay. How I could do it, but I would have to really spend some time. Well, that would be a, that's going to be a good Saturday project for me to see. What I can I can still lie through my teeth and people wouldn't know yeah. because because I'm fundamentally wired to be authentic, clean, forthcoming, mm-hmm. open, and so when somebody like that uh, says a lie, all the other attributes are still there. And. 
I think you're also very much in control of your emotions. Mm, yes, there, there are only two people who can rattle my cage, and it's my wife and my daughter. That's good. I'm glad to hear that they are the two that can do that. <laughs> That's what close relationships are for, I think, to rattle your cage a bit. But um, oh, I was talking about the spiked peas. I just want to go back to that because the spiked pea is something that is is important. It tells me that you're not afraid to voice your opinion and you're going to defend yourself and your views. So while you don't like to be proven wrong, you can at least admit when you are. You got that right. And <clears throat> I sometimes tell people I'm very opinionated, which doesn't mean that I'm arrogant. I'm just opinionated. I have a lot of opinions and I will give you one when I don't even have one. <laughs> yes. Very, very judgmental. I stopped, I stopped you know, the, the judgmental piece is, uh, is very German. And so I stopped, uh, you know, I stopped analyzing uh, uh, things and, and sharing my judgment uh, with others. I don't do this anymore because it's, uh, it's inappropriate and it doesn't do well in, in this country and in, in this culture. Right. Uh, but you know, yeah, I form opinions very quickly. Yeah, it's still and, there. And you I, might not voice them. And I'm all, and I, I'd like to be right, but I have no problem when I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. To admit none, it doesn't hit me at all. What what I don't like is uh, being made a, a fool of in the presence of others. <laughs> hmm. Intriguing. Yeah, I could uh, see that because a lot of yours, it is. I mean, you have there's so much continuity, regularity, um, the zonal balance. <laughs> it does show that you're not totally. How to put it? There are some people who really don't care what other people think. And it shows in their writing where they really are going to do their own thing and they could care less about anybody else or what they think. And that's not yours. No. no. This, this sample that you gave me is still legible. Your writing is fast, yes, but it's legible, which shows that, you know what, you still care about making that impact with people. Okay, good point. <laughs> good point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and the one thing that I really love is all your eye dots. You see, look, even though mm -hmm. you're writing fast. They're right on, right on where they belong. That you better believe it. <laughs> and yeah. you know, when you're talking about your passport and remembering to take it from the wicket and make sure that you have it, it's going to be that I dot. That's the one that really says you're going to be good at arranging details. You're going to be good at uh, sizing up situations as well and making sure everything is planned and in order. Yeah. That's one. I, I know you're a friend of Robin's as well. And Robin has no I dots. But it doesn't mean that he's careless. It means something else entirely on his. But uh, no. he is no. Um, him and I uh, are as as close to each other as I've ever been with another male, in terms of the way we think, the way we feel, uh, how we express. We can we can finish each other's sentences. We had a lengthy session yesterday about. Uh, I read his book. Which one? Sizing up people or whatever the exact title is. And I didn't learn a whole lot from that book because he wrote down what I know. Uh, and then we talked about, you know, uh, our various character traits. And it was always me too, me too, me too. Uh, it's amazing. Yeah, I can see that. And I think it's interesting um, because you're, you're sort of each other were the other sides of the spy yeah. world. You right. were the illegal and he was the one that would go to the legal and try right. to get them recruited so you're kind of opposite sides and yet 
there's so much similarities and yet there's key differences. Robin will break rules. He he doesn't even try to pretend that he will follow the rules. Okay, that, he will that, break the that, rules. That difference ha- we have not yet uh, discovered. <laughs> well, I tell you why that may may well have uh, started and and continued because as an FBI agent, you're constantly stifled by the uh, governmental bureaucracy. All FBI agents uh, that I've ever met would complain about the bureaucracy. You can't get anything done unless you break some rules. Unless you break them, exactly. Whereas for you, a lot of your training, I think, came back to, I mean, you don't really want to draw attention to yourself. So. Right. You're not going to break the rules unless there's a really good reason for it. Mm-hmm. You know, one other thing that I'll just mention really quick about your writing, that I think it comes back to that dichotomy that you were talking about. You have really clear ovals for the most part. So your O's, your circles yeah. are very clear. And that shows us frankness. You're open. You're going to be frank. And yet we also have signs of diplomacy. And you see how you make your M here where the first hump is higher than the second. And then you have a few different words where they start out much bigger and then they go, they go smaller towards the end. Like if you look at story, your, your lowercase s is higher than this. So you often, uh, this where at the bottom here, the W is much bigger than your last E. So you have a way of mm. it slopes down. And whenever we see that, it shows diplomacy. So again, it's a little bit of a dichotomy there where you are open and you are franking it. You're also diplomatic. Yeah, I, the, the diplomacy I learned, I think I started learning uh, during my agent years, but uh, that's not a German character trait. I was not a diplomat growing up in my first 26 years. That's a good point, hey? Now I'm just looking to see, was it there in this writing that you sent me? But we, we have just more the threading going on rather than... We, have an o. we don't have an O in that. No, it's, it's hard to tell <laughs> what we have going on. And I don't see an M. Yeah, that, that's an M. Right here? M-I-T here. M-I-T here? Uh, yeah. Okay. And so that's, this is a very different kind of formation because now we have real sharp points on the top and curves right, on the right. bottom. Um, and so now that's really showing that analytical thinking. This is very mm-hmm. analytical right here. It's not the same kind of M at all. So that's changed quite substantially. Yeah, there's a little more stiffness in that now that I'm paying attention to it. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a lot more stiffness in here. And you can really see like these giant spaces between the words, hey? Yeah, yeah. It's huge. Yeah, it would be interesting if we had a bigger sample, but I love that you had this little one because it's such a great way to look at it and say, wow, there's growth, there's change. And it's almost like, is it the same person? And it's not really, right? There's not entirely. (laughs) No, you're not the same person. There's, you know, when you were still, I think this one you said you were with the KGB at this point. Yes. And I was already in the United States, but uh, let me see. Is it dated at all? My son was already born. So it was maybe in, in my sixth year mm-hmm. in the United States. Six years. So that would have been like in early 80s then. Minus four, 80, yeah, 84. 84-ish, yeah. So yeah, you definitely have changed a lot from this point where you were still a, an illegal operating in the US. And at this point, I'm sure you still had every intention of going back. Absolutely. It was never in doubt until... You know, I, I was faced with that decision. Mm-hmm. And if and if Chelsea is not in the picture, I'm out of there in no time. Right. See, the American way of life wasn't attractive enough for me. And I 
really wasn't making that big money. I was ma making good money at that time, but I wouldn't have stayed for the American way of life or no, I would have gone back. And, you know, again, there's a, there's ego involved, you know, uh, I, they awarded me the year before I quit. They awarded me the order of the red banner, which is the second highest decoration was the second, second highest decoration of the Soviet union. So, you know, I, the illegals were lionized by the KGB Everybody envied us. We were very, very special. There's a romantic aura that has been woven around us. And I, I didn't know that for sure. I found this through you know, research after I, I quit, but I, I had the sense. And actually, Robin told me after having read the book that he was really uh, amazed how well I was treated by my handlers. Definitely, when I wrote this, I was going to go back to Germany and live out my life as a good communist East German citizen. Um, one thing that's really interesting is the way you signed your A, because of course your your real name is is not Jack. That is your the name that you yeah, were and, and that A looks different from from this one. From this one up here. Yeah. Yeah, it is different, isn't it? The one thing that's really interesting, though, is they both, you don't really lift your pen off of the page when you write it. So you do your, oh, your yeah. right? you do your triangle going up and down, and then you keep the, the pen on the page to make a bit of a loop. And just really showing there is so much persistence there. The, the German one has more of a flourish. This one is more. It does. It is much more of a flourish thing. You know, look at me. And yeah, but you see, that was my name. Maybe it had something to do that, like, uh, I only wrote the A like that with, when I wrote my name. And that's what I think is that because this is when you were being that other person, right? This is when you were being that person who was the chemist who, um, I think, was it basketball that you played? Yes, I did. And, and so this is a little bit more of a stand up and take notice. I'm here. It's me. Mm -hmm. There's pride in that. And then, then I also end with a flourish, and and, and the, when I write out the name, the T. Yes, yeah, you do, and that one again, it just all comes back to it's a little bit of that. Uh, here I am. It's it's definitely a sign of confidence and persistence. Yeah, and, and not being a wallflower, <laughs> which is funny because you really were, right? You you were most of the time you were like, don't notice me, but when it came to this, it was like you were totally okay to say notice me. I found two two words right away where where the T is the last letter. And these are printed T's. There's no flourish there. Usually, yeah. Usually you, you, you don't have many flourishes except for when you sign your name here. Mm -hmm. Other than your, uh, your J's, which I think is very European, the way that you do those. Yeah. And you do it there and you do it here as well. That's a European yeah. way of doing it. So interesting. It was really fascinating to take a look at your writing and, and be surprised by it. There's a lot of things in there that I didn't. I wasn't expecting to see. Well, you you absolutely surprised me with, because uh, none of your your determinations were off, not even a bit. Mm. And particularly, you sort of figured out the dichotomous nature of my being. Yeah, I could have told if you hadn't already realized that a week ago. I could have told you now. I would say you'd make a great stoic. <laughs> 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 that's that's your calling right there. <laughs> Yep, no, no. And I shared this with my daughter, Chelsea, and uh, she said, yeah, but me too. <laughs> That's cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Jack. I have enjoyed this very much, getting to know you and to take a look at your handwriting and hear your stories. It was really, it was wonderful. Uh, and if you could uh, 
uh, go to the trouble and write some things down. I'd appreciate that. Absolutely. I will give you a report of what I found, Jack. Awesome. All right. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you're wanting to hear more from Teresa and her guests, be sure to subscribe on the platform of your choice and follow her on Instagram at handwriting underscore PI.